And then I will have you turn to uh, Daniel uh, chapter 2. We'll continue on uh, looking at the book of Daniel here, and we'll read verses 31 through 45, and I'll just set up where we are here as we've been going through this uh, a few weeks now. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a troubling dream. Uh, no one of his wise men could figure it out, and and he wanted them to tell the dream and its interpretation. They couldn't do it, so he sent out his guards uh, to kill the wise men. Uh, they come to Daniel, and Daniel says, well, wait a minute, what's the big hurry here? And uh, he was told what was going on, so Daniel said, well, please let me talk to the king. And then he went to his friends, uh, his three friends, and uh, asked them to pray that God would reveal this dream. And they did, and God revealed the dream to Daniel. And so Daniel uh, went in before the king and said, uh, basically, I can tell you the dream. It's not that I'm uh, a wise man, uh, that I know anything more than anyone else, but God has revealed this dream so that I can tell it to you. And so now we're up to Daniel, and you'll notice at first he will tell what the dream is. This is what Nebuchadnezzar wants. And then he'll give the interpretation of the dream. And so we will read it. It's Daniel chapter 2, beginning at verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given whatever uh, they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdoms shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay." 
And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that your truth will grow in our hearts, that we will be comforted by your truth and strengthened by your truth, that we will be better servants of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll start with a question. If you had world dominion, you ruled the world as, as you know it, and you had power to do whatever you want, what would your chief concern be? What's that thing that pops in your head and you say, this, this, is, this is what I would really want to do? I ask that because in a Bible study I... Uh, asked that very question, and I had uh, college-age students up, uh, people in their 80s, and I just wanted to hear what any of them had to say, and especially the younger people. A lot of the younger ones uh, said, you know, I would, I would just stop all the bickering so we could just help people, and I thought, well, that, that's a noble goal, uh, and for, the, for us in the United States, we can, we can see that a little bit. There's a lot of bickering and, and we have a, maybe a little different sense of power and, and kingdoms than people other places do because we know every four years we're going to vote somebody else in. Somebody else is going to be our leader. So maybe we think a little bit differently than others, but I, I said that that's a good goal. I, that's one of those I had thought of. I, I thought of a few uh, before I asked the question and that mentioned to them I'm a little embarrassed that it wasn't until my fourth or fifth thought that I thought of what Solomon asked for. He asked for wisdom. That should have been a little higher on my list. But in reality, I said, but really think, what does history show us when someone has what they think is complete power and what is it that they want? More power. They want to protect the power they have and increase the power that they have. We see that down through history. Uh, there's a, uh, an attorney and political strategist. I, I came across him while I was looking on uh, the Gospel Coalition. Uh, but as a political strategist, his name is Justin Gibbony, and I might be saying his last name wrong. Uh, but he, he said this, power rooted in this world is usually very insecure and obsessed with self-preservation. And we see that. We've seen that down through history. And we would like to think, and maybe we actually would, if we ruled everything, uh, we would be a little more caring towards other people. 
but that's not what's happened throughout history. And Nebuchadnezzar is a perfect example of it. What concerns him? His kingdom. And that's what he's been thinking about. And that's what this dream was about. And Daniel uh, starts to tell him the dream and then interpret it. And you notice uh, in that first verse, verse 31, Daniel said, You saw, O king. And then in verse 34, he uses the phrase, As you looked. Now remember, Nebuchadnezzar is seeking world domination. And really, he could take the life of anyone he wanted just by saying a word, almost anyone. And in fact, that's what he had been doing. The wise men, he said, they're not telling me what I want. Go kill them. And, And they were being killed. In the stage of history, Nebuchadnezzar was a grand figure, not only in his own eyes. He had a pretty puffed up view of himself, but really the rest of the world looked at Nebuchadnezzar and thought, yeah, that that guy, he's in charge. He is the man. But Daniel has been pointing out that really God is in control of everything. And and by using these terms, you saw, O king, and as you looked, what Daniel is pointing out to him is Nebuchadnezzar, in the grand scheme of things, you are a spectator. God's in control, and really there's not much more you can do than watch and see what happens. The power that you have, Nebuchadnezzar, takes a backseat to God's power. And you, part of Daniel's prayer of thanksgiving, when, when God had given him the dream and, and the interpretation, he knew what it was, uh, part of that prayer, looking back at verse 21 uh, of thanksgiving, was he removes kings and sets up kings. And, and he's, that prayer that he prayed in private, he will, he's willing to say to Nebuchadnezzar's face. In fact, when we get to verse 37, that's exactly what he does, is tell Nebuchadnezzar, God has given you this power. And Daniel, Daniel will tell him that. He gives him the dream uh, and then will give the interpretation. And as we've pointed out before, Daniel, he speaks humbly, but he speaks without fear. That's the impressive thing here. He's a young man, a young Jewish man here in Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar, and he really speaks without fear because he believes what he's saying. When he says, Nebuchadnezzar, the only power you have is from God, he really believes that. And so he can say lovingly and humbly and and, uh, just with all courtesy, exactly what he wants to say because he knows Nebuchadnezzar can't do anything that God won't allow him to do. Reminds me of when I was really young and in first grade and our elementary school was right on the edge of town. Uh, A lot of people could uh, walk to school that lived on that side of town. Uh, We lived a little ways away so we had to bus but they would always cut through this one yard and, and the people apparently didn't care. There was a pretty well-worn path through these people yard as, as, as students would walk up to the elementary school and then the high school was up there. But there was this dog uh, kind of in the corner 
And, and this dog would bark at them as they walked by, but the dog was on a chain. And when I was in first grade, the dog looked huge. And, and I was on the bus with my brother, and I said, aren't they scared of that dog? And my older brother said, what can the dog do? He's on a chain. They, they have nothing to worry about. And I said, well, what if the chain breaks? And he said, well, then they have something to worry about. Uh, but as long as that dog was chained up, they would walk by it and the dog would bark and they really had nothing to worry about. And that's kind of how Daniel is with Nebuchadnezzar. You know, I can say what I have to say and I really don't have to worry because God's in charge, Nebuchadnezzar. And he really believes that. And that gives him this boldness to speak this dream and, and to speak in, in the way that he has been speaking to the king and will continue to speak to the king. Now, the historical significance of the dreams uh, or this dream and then its interpretation has long been debated. And, and we're not going to go into too much of the imagery and, and the debates of, of some of these things. Uh, I'll stick with mostly just generally accepted interpretations because there's a really good lesson in all of that. But, but he tells him what this dream is, the, the golden head and then the silver and bronze and iron and clay as, as you move down, the iron mixed with clay and the feet. And then he tells them this is the interpretation in verse 36. He said, you, O king, the king of kings, and then notice here he says it, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory. And, and you really do uh, have a lot of power on this earth, Nebuchadnezzar. But remember, it's the source of the power is from heaven. It's the God of heaven. And no matter how many times Daniel says this, Nebuchadnezzar is going to forget it. But he points that out. And, and he said, and into whose hand he has given uh, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And if Daniel had stopped there, Nebuchadnezzar would have been high-fiving him. Yes, this is perfect. I'm golden boy. Because in his head, he's gold. Uh, but the dream or the interpretation, I should say, continues. There is going to be a kingdom following you, uh, this chest and arms of, of silver. Now, uh, let me put some years on some of these kingdoms here. This head of gold that is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is Babylon. The Babylonian Empire went from uh, 625 B.C. to 539 B.C., and you might quibble on a couple of those years, but roughly that's where it's at. Uh, now, this next kingdom that comes along, this chest and arms of silver, this is the, uh, the Medes and the Persians. They call it the, the Medo-Persian uh, Empire. And this uh, then started in 539 B.C. and went to... 331 BC, and you'll notice as he works down, uh, the materials become less valuable, or inferior is the word he uses here. Now, inferior, uh, certainly the Medo-Persian uh, kingdom was inferior to Babylon uh, historically, but even more than that, he's talking moral and spiritual. 
And we'll really see that when we get to Rome, that you're inferior morally and spiritually. And so there's the, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire that does come later on. And then we've, get, we've got this middle and, uh, and thighs of bronze. Uh, and this is, uh, this is the Greek Empire. Uh, and this went from 331 B.C. to 63 B.C. And this was, the Greek Empire was huge. Uh, once again, this was a, a mighty empire. Uh, Alexander the Great uh, was king uh, in this empire for a while. And uh, it was said of Alexander that when he was in his 20s, he actually cried because there were no more lands for him to conquer. He ruled as far as he could see, and there's really no more for him to conquer. Uh, he died at the age of 32 or 33, uh, depending on uh, where you look. But, but again, uh, going back to that question I started with, if you ruled everything you knew, what would be your main concern? Alexander is actually a pretty good example. He wants to conquer more. That's what he's after, and when he figured out, you know what, there's no more I can really conquer, he cried. Um, but he was that next kingdom then, the bronze kingdom. And it's, it's the fourth kingdom that comes along that gets interesting then. Because he, he starts to talk a little bit more about this fourth kingdom. Strong as iron. And now this, this will be the Roman kingdom. Legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. Uh, and, and that's from back in verse 33. But this Roman empire, uh, just like iron, crushed a lot of nations. Uh, it lasted from 63 BC to uh, AD 476 or thereabout. And... As I mentioned, iron, it was a crushing, oppressive kingdom. And historians are also quick to note that it's, it's inferior uh, in its spirituality and morally. Uh, historians note that when Paul writes in Romans 1, uh, starting at verse 18 and then continues on and he talks about uh, some of the stuff that, that that's a pretty accurate picture of Rome and I'll just uh, point out some of the things that uh, Paul writes uh, ungodliness and unrighteousness uh, they became fools uh, dishonoring their own bodies and, and others debased minds all manner of unrighteousness and evil haters of God boastful faithless heartless ruthless uh, and there was more to that list but you get the idea of what Rome was like. But none of these kingdoms stand. None of these kingdoms hold together. At the base of them is just this weak mishmash of iron and clay. And when this, when this stone hits it, it all shatters. When we see in verse 35, there's a, uh, it talks about the becoming chaff, all the gold and, and everything broken together, uh, together broken in pieces, became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. 
uh, it reminds us of Psalm 1. In verses uh, 4 and 5 of Psalm 1, the wicked are not so, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. And there is a very direct and deliberate echo here, Nebuchadnezzar. Your kingdom, even though you're the head of gold, it's not going to stand. You will eventually be blown away like chaff, just like all these other kingdoms. And it's, it's good for us to remember, especially uh, in the days in which we live, that, that as we look at these kingdoms and what makes them rise and what makes them fall, it's not, it's not military and it's not financial, um, but their fall is moral and spiritual and that God is in control of this all. Kingdoms are not an accident of history. And that's good for us to remember today. We see a lot going on in the world, and none of this is an accident. It's not as though God got through the Roman kingdom and then said, well, now we're just going to wing it the rest of the way. He knows what's coming. And he's got it all planned for his people. But Daniel continues then in verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. In the days of those kings, there's this fifth kingdom that comes along. And this is the one that really gets center stage. This kingdom that will fill the whole earth and starts as Daniel has, it starts kind of small, but then fills the whole earth. And as Daniel says it, it's been building really through history. Uh, from eternity past, if you want, or especially uh, it becomes noticeable at the fall. But God has been building this kingdom. And during this Roman Empire, that Daniel spends a little time talking about and, and will be coming up. Now he, remember, he's on the other side of history here. But during this Roman Empire, something significant is going to happen. Uh, in Psalm 2, uh, which is a, a messianic psalm, uh, in fact, it mentions the sun specifically, kiss the sun. Uh, but part of Psalm 2 in verses 8 and 9 it reads, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Again, we get that echo and Daniel is very clear about that. There's this one, this son who is coming and it's his kingdom and he'll break all the rest of them. And that decisive moment for this fifth kingdom then began during the Roman Empire. During that fourth empire. Mark 1, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
during that fourth kingdom, that's, that's when a lot happened. And the kingdom of God, as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the dream, as Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar, the dream is certain and sure in verse 45. All kingdoms are really spectators. All these kings down through history are your spectators. God is in control. And we say this not in a fatalistic way, as though we shrug our shoulders and say, well, I guess whatever happens, happens. But we know this as Daniel knew this so that we can be bold, so that in, in acting in grace and in love, we can say what needs to be said. Because God is going to control it all anyhow. And if we are pleasing to God, we know that he is with us and he will watch over us, whatever life throws at us. And Daniel's going to meet some pretty trying times as he comes up, as we do, maybe not to the extent of Daniel, but as we do. But we can be confident and bold because we know God's in control. And it's one thing for us to look back at these prophecies and say, yeah, we can see all this happened. But remember, Daniel's on the other side of it, and he's speaking into the future. And he's t telling Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom eventually is going to fall. But as we look at this, we can see two things that really jump out at us. Two assurances we have. The first is the assurance of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. Everything God told Daniel and that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar happened. And the son came into the world and it's his kingdom. And the son said he's going to come back and we can trust that because we know that God has been faithful this whole time through and, and the assurance of that kingdom is there. Hebrews 12 writes, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God, or, yeah, to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. He's the ultimate king. Revelation 11, uh, when the angel, uh, seventh angel, blew his trumpet, uh, there was a loud voice in heaven, it said, and the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The assurance of the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom. We can rest in that. And also, we have this assurance that as people of God, we already belong to the kingdom of God. In Colossians 1, Paul writes, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Notice the past tense, he's transferred us. We are part of his kingdom already. 1 Thessalonians 2 
We exhort each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In 2 Peter chapter 1, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's just a sampling of them. We could talk about more verses like that. But we live in the world and there are kingdoms in this world. And because of that, there will be constant tension. We see that all the time, every time we look at the news. But there is no mistake where our loyalties lie. There should be no mistake where our loyalties lie because there is no mistake whose kingdom we are a part of. And it's God's. Because the Son did come into the world and because that Son died for our sins and because we are made righteous by him, we are part of God's kingdom. And because it's all of God, it can't be destroyed. And we can't be cast out. If God is for us, who's against us? There's no one that can match him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these great words of comfort. Knowing that your kingdom come, Lord. And we pray that we will walk with that assurance and that boldness and that confidence, knowing you as our king, and nothing will happen outside of your will. We thank you for that comfort, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name.